Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is Lloyd Dobbs, bassist and founding member of Naughty's band The Paddingtons. We spoke about his early life growing up in Hull, his first steps into the music, how it felt playing in a band with his brother, working with famous producer Owen Morris and been brought under the wing of Pete Doherty and Baby Shambles. We spoke about the Paddington's career and about what Lloyd's been up to now and at the end Lloyd picked his heroes to come for a dinner party. I hope you all enjoy the show. I'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks again. Lloyd Dobbs, bass player of the Paddington's. Thanks very much for coming on. If you can just tell us about your early life growing up as a kid, how that was, mm. whereabouts you were and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, from Hull, uh, East Riding in Yorkshire. Uh, born on Northall Estate. Well, that's where I'm from. Family's from there, so it's a council estate. Nice council estate, really, in the sense that it was the houses that were all built just between the walls. So, you know, good quality council housing, nice gardens, mm-hmm. bit of green space around there. Went to local school, fifth down primary school. It's not there now, knocked it down. Uh, yeah, a normal, typical... Childhood, really, a bit of sport was going on, played a bit of rugby and stuff. Our kid, Grant, who was in the Paddington's as well, he did as well. Big rugby family, uh, rugby league, you know, it's not, uh, you don't get much rugby union, it's rugby league. So right. actually rugby league town rather than a, a city. We've got Hull City Football Club and that's obviously got big history, but really there's two rugby teams in Hull. So we was uh, on the west of the side of the city, so we was all Hull FC fans. But I guess there was always music going on in the house. My old fella's a musician. Right. My old fella's, uh, my old fella, Les, he's a uh, real big on folk music. So I was kind of brought up with that. So there was always like um, a concertina and accordion playing or a Tim Will and Scurry. Uh, I mean, I was, I was hooked straight away. I went from being a kid with short hair, wanted playing rugby to a kid with long hair playing rugby, but listening to Oasis with right. a tracky top on and that and a pair of samba. So when I got into that, like anybody who gets into music big time, the first thing you want is that acoustic guitar. So they happen to be one in the house because my dad had instruments everywhere. So there was that going on, playing. I used to go to these folk sing-arounds with my mum and dad uh, up in Beverly and these folk, little folk festivals in pubs. So I'd, after about six months of playing guitar, my first performances were all at these folk sing-arounds, playing Wonderwall, Live Forever and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So they'd be playing all these, singing all these sea shanties and they'd encourage me to get up play a bit of this and at the same time the Beatles because of the Oasis, the Oasis connection so I'd play a load of Beatles tunes and that's kind of what it was for me my first introduction to music was folk music and then banging Britpop and then playing in pubs and not like as open mics but playing in rooms with people and they really encouraged you you know right so was your was your brother into the music as well at this point yeah it was Grant was always like a couple of because my, he's my little brother man people some people don't realise, some people think we're about the same age. Uh, but he's my little brother of two school years, so he was always a little bit behind in a sense. But by the time I was 15, 16, he was definitely, because he got the drum kit and that. He was, we went to a school in Hull called Trinity House. It's like, it's hard to describe if you're not old, but it's kind of a military school in a way, a near school, hit by the Maritime City. And there's two, there's a school, School called the Hull Trinity House. You wear like a sailor that normal. So we both mm-hmm. went to there, but they had like a drum corps. So when Grant was about 12, he got a drum corps there, which led him to wanting to actually play a drum. And spent time going, 
I had enough now, when I say good enough, I wasn't very good, but I was wanting to be in a band. So I was like, you're going to play drums. And that's, yeah. so he started, when I'm, he got stuck in when I was 14, 15. He was musical, looks, uh, less guitars, more drums and banging stuff. And he was always into the same music, a little bit behind me. So I'd get the Seahorses album and he'd be like, uh, and two years later, he'd be really listening to the Seahorse album or whatever. And right. I think when I got into Nevada, it might have been banned too far for him. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey. that was what it was like, really, music and... Yeah. Uh, so what what happened with the Paddingtons? Were you... These boys, were they at school with you as well? No was a thing that happened... Sorry, let me just turn this off. Something's going on. My bloody computer's going off like hell. No, so the pads wanted... They were a school band. Our kid went to school with me. We was a band that we kind of formed when I was at college. So I'm about, I was about 18. And there was a... At the time, there was a... This really good indie nights, you know, not like I go to nightclub anymore, but there used to be some really cool indie nights. There was one called Yo-Yo. Uh, and they're still on the go now, and they're good friends. In actual fact, the people who run Yo-Yo... Uh, I played bass in their daughter's band, actually, Yasmin Koba, you check them out. Right. And we saw, so it was all at these, all at like college, and we used to go to your know, Piper, Piper Club. So it'd be me, our kid, Marv, who was off the same council estate as us, but we didn't know him. We met him through college, and uh, there was a link between Grant and uh, Josh, who played rugby together in Cottingham. So it was all from the same part of all, but we didn't grow up together. We all became mates when we was all about 18. Right. And we sort of was a band before we, well, me and Tom Atkin used to say we was in a band when we used to see each other in Piper and he'd be walking around with these like cool from back in, I, I know you from Stone, so we're going to be a band. We're being a band. And we were saying that for a year and until eventually we got our act together, sort of got a room together and we, uh, we, we rehearsed in a, a space behind this booze called the Ewa Farms. Tom's dad had like a, and there was a space in there. So we used to go in there, we'd take the bat drum kit. I was playing this awful Fender Strat, uh, Stratocaster Squire for rubbish. And we, I wasn't even playing bass. And we used to go in there and just play. I remember we used to always play Slight Return by the Blue Tones mm-hmm. to play that. And uh, it was just more of a like, get together and play. We didn't have any aspirations of being like a band as such. As in, like a band, let's go for it, let's get, try and get a record deal. We did it just to play together. Yeah. Real good fun, though. I mean, there was playing uh, Britpop by numbers, but there was a, a change, though. One of the things, so we were playing all these Britpop esque songs, maybe a bit of Roses and stuff like that. And, uh, and there's all sorts of musical tastes flowing around at the time, but that's what we kind of did because it was the easiest thing to do. But then the Strokes album came out when we was just doing all that stuff. Right. So I remember the, I think it was Josh. Josh's sister got us a, uh, got him a copy of the first Strokes album and he brought it down because Josh had joined the band by then. And we was like, what's this? It was literally year zero when that album came out. Yeah. Everybody says that, didn't they? We was like, everything before this. You want to say again? Everybody says that. It was kind of, it just yeah. changed music completely. It was, especially for people of a certain age. So like how... At the time, I'm 19 or 20, maybe something like that. And I was probably too young to experience Britpop as in go to the gigs, the Nebworths or whatever, do you know what I mean? Or the festivals, I was too young. Mm-hmm. So I was like the uh, like watching Oasis on telly. I want part of it, want my thing. 
but as you get older and then a band like the Strokes come and then quite soon after the Libertines and that whole new rock revolution, that was mine. Yeah. That, that, that was my scene. I mean, it came and it just kicked us up the ass. I mean, we just totally changed the way we listened to music and thought about music. It was like short, snappy music. No, no fucking around with guitar solos or all that. I mean, not like we could play guitar solos, to be fair. But, do you know what I mean? It gave us a reason to exist, you know what I mean? And I think just the way they made music, the Strokes, that first album was just... I mean, I'll say it, it's, it's my... It's the most influential, influential album in my life. If you didn't get the Strokes, you didn't get the no. Strokes, you don't get the Paddingtons. Simple as that. Brilliant. That's a, that's a brilliant one-liner, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> What happened then? Did you start kind of recording and stuff like that? With we did some demos and stuff. There's a, the Hull's got a great music scene, and it did down there. It's even now. So there's loads of studios, and there's a lot of people encouraging you. There's a lot of people giving you a bit of healthy competition. It was all good. Um, we sort of played the we played the pubs originally. We didn't quite get into the scene. Like if you, I don't know if you know Hull, but it was the Adelphi, which is mm-hmm. like it's it's a it's a well famous music venue, which is basically built in the back of an house. Right. On the street, it was fucking brilliant. But we didn't. You you had to be. The goal was to play there. Do you know what I mean? Let's get a gig at the Adelphi, yeah. uh, where Oasis had played Green Day and Radiohead. They'd all played there. But we played all these little dodgy boozers up and down all of West Hull, even in East Hull. You know what I mean? Which is when you're that age, it's like you go into another bloody planet. Uh, <laughs> but then we started to do a bit of recording and stuff. And then once we got into the old scene a little bit. It wasn't so much. We did a few demos and stuff, but we started to get gigs outside of Hull. So, and there was like, do you, do you remember like the Libertines.org sort of forums? Yeah. It was like these online forums where like essentially Libertines fans and that would meet and talk. Tom was real big on that stuff and he'd met Doherty once at some gig, uh, Nottingham Rescue, no, Nottingham Rock City. So he was like, I've just met Pete Doherty. So that was pretty cool. And then and, uh, we kind of got gigs on the back of that connection. And libertines.org. So I think the fact when we went down to London, that was when it opened all the doors. Because I mean, right. because you, then you're you're in this, you're, you're in there, and you get you're in, you're building your own network of musicians and promoters, and we started to do gigs down there. I think the first gig we ever did in London was in a squat. Uh, in well, it was the first gig we did in London in King's Cross. And it was we thought it was going down to do a proper gig, and we ended up doing this gig at. Uh, it's called, it used to be, it's not there now, it's called, it used to be called The Lighthouse. So when you come out of King's Cross Station, you mm-hmm. turn left and you could see it. And it was just, we, we broke in, the, this guy broke us in, it was called Scarborough Steve, he used to be in the original Libertines years ago. That's right, aye. Yeah, and he, and he said, come on, and we thought we'd have a proper gig. We'd, we was playing in a, a squat, which was occupied by all sorts of walks of life, from, well, I'll be honest, from heroin, from heroin addicts to avant-garde artists to Portuguese punks. It was like a right hotbed of... All sorts. It was like part vice den, part informal art community. It was brilliant. Good. So we goes in there and do a gig there, and then from the on the back of that, you start playing like the Rhythm Factories, and that's when you started meeting our our peers at the time. So the Rocks, the Unstrung, the Rakes. Well, less, the Rakes came a bit later on. They weren't really part of that scene. But once you're in, you're in. I guess if you if you've got the the, the will to keep pushing at it, you've got the you've almost been the doors have been open to the network. That usually means something can happen, and we was lucky enough for it to happen, really. Right. So, I mean, a lot was kind of made of the New Yorkshire scene as well. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Where do you, where would you kind of put yourself? Would you put yourself in that, or would you say you were more a London 
yeah, we were more the London scene. Yeah, that, that's we, what I thought as well, because you were always kind of Pete Doherty, Baby Shambles, all that. It was yeah. always that association I got with yourself. Yeah. Well, I think the New Yorkshire thing, we had friends in bands in that New Yorkshire thing. So obviously the Cribs, but the Cribs were initially part of that New Yorkshire thing. They stood yeah. on their own. And then they the were Cribs were never really part of their scene, weren't they? No, uh, really? But there was Black, Black Wire... They were good lads. They were a great band. And then there was, I get the big obvious ones are like Kaiser Chiefs and things like that. But then there was like 10,000 things. Uh, Forward Russia, they were mm. a great band. And that, I mean, I guess that was probably that what was dubbed by the enemy as New Yorkshire. But I guess that was its own thing in itself. There was a really good Leeds scene. We used to go to Leeds quite a lot. I've got friends there and stuff. But we was more the London thing. And yeah. I think it was because we, I mean, we, our influences were on our sleeves. I mean, we did. We did dress. It was like it was influenced by the way the Strokes and and then therefore the Libertines dressed and stuff. So that was a big thing. But then I remember going down to do this uh, photo shoot uh, outside of uh, Buckingham Palace. So they went down. There was all these bands there. There was Pete Docherty there at the time. He was in Baby Shambles. He, it, it just after he got out of prison after the first album and stuff. And there was him at the front. There was all these London bands. And was like, I can mind that selfish cunt and all that. Yeah, selfish cunt got yeah. loads of horse shit thrown at him by Pete Dockett and Dominic Masters. Yeah, there's all horse shit everywhere around. I think they all like horse down parade, they're just throwing it at him. No, but there's like us, the unstrung, the rocks, the dogs. There was all that, and then there was his enemy journalists who put it together. And then we opened our gobs and they went, "Oh, you're not from London?" We went, no, no, we fuck from all. But we used to, we used to, we was in London every other weekend doing something. Yeah, getting in, getting, the, getting in there and making those connections. But uh, yeah, to go back to what you said, that New Yorkshire scene, there were some brilliant bands in, in Leeds. And when, I guess that, I guess by the time the New Yorkshire thing had gone and even like the Grotten Roll London thing had gone, the bands just stood on their own. You still played with all those bands and yeah. still had connections with them. I, I remember there was a real good new Leeds band, Le Flames, Les Flames, Le Flames, they were called. They were a real good band. Right. So um, Al McGee, he sent yeah. to Pop Tones, Al McGee's label at the time. Yeah. So how, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, great, that one. We they used to be doing these all days at uh, the venue, the Riven Factory on Whitechapel Road. Mm-hmm. Oh, mate, Johnny, uh, Johnny Riven used to put them on who passed away, actually. A uh, real good guy. Right. Uh, and uh, he used to put these gigs on. And we'd play, I remember we played a few back-to-back. Like, you do one one month, and about two months later, you do another one. And we was playing, uh, Selfish Cunt were playing, The Rocks were playing. Docket, he might have turned up and done a, a set on his own, or maybe even with some of the libertines. But we played at about half past three in the morning. Right. So at the time, we're doing our real. It's, I mean, some of the songs that what got on the first album were played, so there was still that punk thing going on. But it won't, we weren't a fully formed band. We had we had a nucleus of five songs within a set of, of ten that were showing promise. And McGee saw us, and uh, he grabbed me and Tom about half three in the morning. Credit to him, he said, "I want to sign you." We was like, what? <laughs> and like, I mean, it probably resonated more with me as I'd big Oasis fan. Not that Tom was obviously, but I'd read all the books. I knew who McGee was and I knew what the, yeah. the, the, the heritage he's got with like the likes of Primal Scream and things like that and all the bands. Great Scottish bands as well, that, what they call Teenage Fan Club and all stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wow, McGee's asking, he said, hey, I think you sound like the Saints. And I, I'm at, at that point, I'm becoming a bit of a punk connoisseur. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, I get that. One of our songs does sound like the Saints, and Tom's going, oh, yeah, nice one, cool. I don't think Tom even knew who the Saints were. 
So he said, yeah, I'll just, I've, I've heard your demo. I've played it on Def Disco Radio. I think it was like a thing he did on Radio 1. I said, well, I'll just release that. I said, no, we went, no, we want to re-record it. He said, well, I ain't got any money. So if you're going to record it, I can't pay for it, but I'll put it out. So we re-recorded uh, 21, the single. There's a really old version. There's three versions out online. You can get, you get the album version, single version, mm-hmm. and then you get this demo version. And then we, we went back to Wolf quickly, recorded it. John Spence at Fairview Studio, real good studio. And uh, in hindsight, it was probably a bit of a, too, a bit clean. The production was good, but it wasn't really us. But anyway, he put that out. And what had happened with that, it went out with no promo whatsoever. I guess the only thing that got people to buy it was the buzz around the scene at the time, the London scene. And it, it went in at number 47 with no promo, so it didn't quite make the top 40. But I think that made people, because Pop Turns was a feeder band to Mercury Universal. So I think the people at Mercury Records went, who's these? Mm. Why have they gone to 47 with no promo? So that opened another door. So McGee, that single and McGee's, I guess, kudos around McGee and the fact that he finds bands and the scene was buzzing and bubbling and dockety and the enemy yeah. was full of all that stuff. It got us close enough to the line for a, a major to sign us, which is fucking brilliant, man. That's when that's when our heads all went bang. Mm. Yeah. McGee comes up so much in all these podcasts and it doesn't matter who it is. It could be bands that you wouldn't expect yeah. and everybody loves McGee, everybody loves Oasis. It's, it's mental. Like Alfie Jackson for the Holloways, I spoke to yeah. him a couple of weeks ago, and their music is fucking miles away from Oasis in it. But yeah. he was like, he grew up a big Oasis fan. It's mental. We all did our age for the yeah. most part. I mean, I know them. I know Alfie. I know all the lads. We used to play with them a lot. And they came a little bit after us, but not much after us. But when you used to, you'd be sat there, and you'd you'd all be into all sorts of different music. But you usually usually go back. If we're all about the same age, so we're all becoming 40 or whatever, maybe a bit older, some of them. Mm. You can always go back to some Oasis gig or something. Yeah. You can. The Unstrung were like that. The We were like that. I know the, the, the Holloways were like that. But then other bands were totally now to do with Oasis, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't nod to McGee because McGee's not just about signing Oasis, is he? No, well, that's... He, I mean, he's everywhere. He's, he's, signed, he's signed some of the greatest rock and roll bands or more experimental bands that there's out there, do you know? I mean, yeah. yeah, teenage fan club. Even bands like Ride that get don't get a good rep, really. Oh, not, not no, no, not Ride. I mean, he did, he did sign them, but the good. Uh, what were they called? She, she, she shined on. I can't remember the name of the fucking band, but there's some yeah. ace bands there anyway. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, teenage fan club there for just kind of five minutes away from me, and they're like fucking oh, massive they? here. I, I, uh, I yeah. five minutes in journey. Um, so. Uh, the album first come first. Oh yeah. Recorded uh, with Owen Morris. What was it like working with him? Yeah. But it was a bit, mate. Yeah. I'm not going to do what Tom does. He always he gives away too much detail. Does Tom? <laughs> I think someone's <laughs> going to sue you eventually, mate. Nah. And it was great. And again, it, again, it goes back to that. You signed by Alan McGee, so he's the Oasis connection. Then you get your press officer. We had a guy called Johnny Hopkins, and I still mm. see Johnny. He's got a connection to Hull. So Johnny Hopkins is a good friend and he was our press officer and he was the Oasis' press officer. So there was two ticks. I was like, fucking hell, this is brilliant. Mm. And then our manager at the time, our managers, Nathan Leakes and Flash, I can't his full name. Nathan Leakes was our manager, really. Good luck, Nathan. They managed Owen. 
and then really? so he was brought in. And uh, it was we 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 initially we 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 went and recorded Panic Attack first in Parkgate Studios down near Hastings. We did that in a in a day, a couple of days, uh, and that was our first experience in a proper studio with a proper producer and a proper character because he is. Yeah, uh, I remember. I remember him trying to find. We were trying to find the sound of it. He was having a bit of like almost like a pre, pre meet before the recording, and he's playing all these CDs. Saying, "We want. I want to. I want to. I want you to sound as heavy and as big as Green Day's new album." And he said, "I. He didn't like Green Day. Neither did we really. I mean, used to when we was kids. It was that American Idiot album, and the intro to that song, American Idiot, comes in like a brick in the face. He said, "We want that, but we. And then he was going, but we want to sound like." New Order. I'm like, what? And he's throwing these CDs around the room, really trying to get what we, where we was going to go with it. So we're like in awe, going, wow, this is the real deal. And we did that. And Panic Attack was recorded separately. And I think we recorded the B-side, which was Keep Your Distance. And then we went back to do the album in the same studio for two weeks. We tracked it live in a week. Uh, then our grant fled because he'd done his drums. He was like, I can't stay here any longer. It's too intense. <laughs> and then we finished all the overdubs and vocals the next week, and then it was mixed separately. So it was all done in two weeks, and it was heady. Do you know what I mean? It was, we was all young and not for getting wrecked all the time, which we shouldn't have been, but we did, fair enough. Yeah. And uh, Owen's got a bit of a reputation. So it, it was great. And it was coming up with, I mean, ultimately the album was a live album with lots of overdubs. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of guitars on it, but the the essence of it is a live live uh, five piece, just giving it, and then you put stuff, stuff on top of it, and he made it sound massive. Yeah, you can you can hear that. It does sound just like a gig, like a live gig. Yeah, with millions of overdubs. Though. If you actually played yeah. that album live, you'd need about six guitar players. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you listen to, I mean, there's loads of cool little bits, but it was it was what we was really impressed with is like. You did about Owen's, it's like a technique he reckons, well, I believe he did, he came up with the brick wall and so it's it's pushing it as loud as it can go. And I think the other story is that when you listen to Oasis records in the 90s on the jukebox, it was always louder. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a muse te, muso techie. It might have something to do with mastering as well, but ultimately he did that to our album. It was it was heavy, it was loud and it hit people in the face. I remember listening to it in an hotel room in a playing it to our mates of one of the fact, the fact well, it was a final mix and there's a lot of, <coughs> of our peers on the label who got signed at the same time as us. There was a few people in there. It was, we was playing a gig. It was at the Great Houston Hotel, East London. And we got to listen to it for the first time. And we was like, wow, big speaker system. And then, but they could see the bands were going, wow. Mm-hmm. You, you fell on your feet there, lads. That sounds amazing. So really good experience. And it was like, I mean, just to, just to see those songs that we, I mean, from going from indie wannabe Oasis ripoffs or whatever, Britpop ripoffs to our journey through what influenced by the Strokes and Libertines and our writing our first proper decent songs and then seeing those songs go from there to that, it was amazing. Like every dream come true for a young musician. Where, where, whereabouts did you record this? Was that uh, Owen's studio? No, no, it wasn't his studio. It was in Parkgate. Right, that's right. Just because um, I'm trying to think when he would, he worked with The View as well. Yeah, would that have been before or after you? After, like, after. Yeah. Because I was just wondering, because did you see him when he'd done the view, he had the view at his studio and they were um, messing about painting each other and all that? So yeah. I thought maybe I thought maybe you came after and, and you weren't allowed near his studio or something. 
No, no, no. The View were very much post Paddington's. They used to come to our gigs. The View when they yeah. were, I don't think there was even the View. So we'd play in Dundee or somewhere or wherever. Five. I, I used to love going up to Scotland to play, and we've still got friends to this day who mm. we keep in touch with. Uh, and sometimes when we've got back together, which we might come on to, they've come down to see us. But the View used to come and and uh, and and, the, and they were great. There was you can. They probably might not like me saying this, but you can hear some of our music in some of their music. But they've got, I think Kyle's an amazing songwriter. Mm. And, and 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 I think I think you can hear some of that. Yeah, you can hear some of the edge of the Paddington's with some really strong pop sensibilities over the top of it. In in short, did better than us. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, but they're the great lads. I think they yeah. recorded that album in Scotland and Scotland in Scarborough, I think, if I remember rightly. I remember them doing it. Yeah. Remember him doing it? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely highly forty um, up here, definitely in Dundee. Anyway, yeah. uh, one of the boys, really good pals with a few chipsy. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, he's always sharing your stuff because obviously he's kind of disappeared for for ages and kind of you get forgot about. But every now and again, chipsy posting a, a Paddington's yeah. video, man. See, I forgot about him. What yeah. a lad! He's brand he's new. Give him my regards if you see him. Yeah. But well, I usually bump into him at gigs because obviously he's up in Dundee and we're, I'm running about Glasgow, but I yeah. kind of, you always see folk like that at gigs. It's mental. So, yeah, well, I liked about when I played up in Scotland. I mean, we, we, we recorded our second album in Glasgow. Right. And we stayed there for two months. Uh, Tony Dugan, a Scot- he was a Scottish kid who he produced us. He did like mm-hmm. Alan Sebastian and... Teenage fan club and all that, but we yeah. was there for two. We was there for two months, and people had come who we'd met in the last three or four years. It's come to stay with us all the time. So you'd have it like a gang from Dundee had turned up, or some people had come from Edinburgh, or and the, but then they all live separate parts of the country, Scotland that is, mm-hmm. but they'd all meet in Glasgow or Edinburgh. So it was here. So they was all co- like descending down to the gig, and it was here. So like a community. A yeah. disparate community in a sense because they're from all over Scotland, but they came together for the gigs. It was brilliant to see. Yeah, I think it's just because it's not. It's not that big. It's only like yeah. a couple of hours to get kind of in these places. Yeah. Um, so it's not that hard to kind of be connected. Mm-hmm. So obviously, kind of like touring. Yeah. Especially the first time you were touring with Baby Shambles and you played with the Crabs, Dirty Pretty Things, yeah. you, all these bands. So what was what was life like in the road for the, the Paddington's hanging about with all these folk? I mean, we... We did the view gigs came a bit later on actually, uh, but the the the, the pre album tours were like when you that's when we do like supporting Baby Shambles. So before we'd had an album out, we used to support Baby Shambles quite a bit, and them tours were pretty. As you, well, we were supporting them when he was in when Pete was in the yeah. in the, the sun yeah. and the mirror and the, the news of the world every day. So it was a bit of a circus. Uh, it was great because you got to see the baby shambles every night. You got to knock, knock around with Pete. And after each gig, you'd be in the hotel room or in the back of the bus or in a dressing room playing guitar with him. And pl- I remember playing Velvet Underground songs with him all night. And like, and it was brilliant. Dream come true stuff, especially if you're a big fan. Uh, and the gigs were great. And we were finding our feet. So the, the album was, it was almost wrote. There were some other bits and bobs around the edges. And we was fairly tight. But it's like, I guess after... A single panic attack came out and we really got our shit together. And then we was going on tour on our own, right, by then. So we did the toilet tour and then we did, like, 
the QMU, is it QMU in Glasgow? Yeah. That yeah, was that's amazing. a crowd event, yeah. That was, and we sold that out and was like, I was like, we sold it out. How many tickets is it all? And I think it's about 900 capacity. He was like, fucking hell, yeah. we sold 900 tickets in Glasgow. And then we'd do like all the big London shows. And and we, I mean, it's interesting actually. Someone, said, a friend of mine called John Andrews, and just to drop his name, because he was, he, I play in a band with him now. He's a local musician in Hull. But he was in a band called Kingmaker years ago. Do you remember Kingmaker? Mm, King, Kingmaker were like, they're a band from the early 90s. So they're Hull, they're a success story from Hull. Right. And uh, they were in the, on front cover of the NME. They played the same bill as Nirvana at uh, Reading Festival. It was, and Steve Lamatt loved them. Anyway, he was. He, he, they're a real good old band. And they're still playing now, actually. Like, uh, But anyway, so it, it, we became mates with him in like, during the Paddington's and he recorded a load of demos for us and stuff like that. And he came to that tour we did QMU. We played, uh, what's it called? Yulu in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he recorded the gig for us. And he's just given me, uh, it's brilliant. He just gave us a, a live performance, which we'd never heard before, of us playing at that point. And right. it's, when, it's when we're up. I'll share it with you, man, if you if you want to hear it. Ah, that'd, it. Be, that'd be brilliant, man. Uh, we're on about doing something with it. Tom, Tom's got some friends who are cons- going to maybe help us. Because it was also, it was filmed as well by a filmmaker called Giorgio. Giorgio Testi, I think that was Testini, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he filmed it. So there's a video on YouTube where you see the, the Paddington's playing uh, Janie Jones, and mm-hmm. it's live. That's the gig. So if you've ever seen that, it's the whole gig. And Giorgio's got the footage, so we're all about merging them together. But that was what when we was hitting it. And, right. then, and then so the gigs were as intense as that. We were playing really well. And then, and then it was all the, the circus behind it all because it was... We was always a band that had our dressing room door open, always. Mm-hmm. Even after guitars got nicked and all sorts, we still let people... I mean, we used to always go, come in, have a beer with us. If we go to... I remember touring Germany and we'd meet people on the street who would come to see us and we'd say, come on, if you, if you was look, not lucky enough, but if you met us, we'd say, come back to the dressing room, here's the guest list, all that sort of stuff. So there was that going on, but we used to always chuck people out about 20 minutes before stage and we used to just have the band in there. And the only other person who was allowed in was... Our tour manager, Ali Hubbard, who was Josh's sister, is Josh's sister. Our guitar tech and our front of house. And that was us and that. No one else was allowed in. I remember my partner, Kerry, wanted to come in once. And I was like, no. You... And I'm still with my partner now. We've got kids together and stuff. And when we first got together, it was like, you have to leave the dressing room. She was like, why? I went, you just do. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, getting our heads into the gig. Do you know what I mean? Getting a bit of fire in our belly, walking around, like barking and just making weird noises out and nervous energy in the room and stuff. Yeah, and then we go out and fucking have it. Do you know what I mean? We was, and there was a point, two thousand and five, six, seven. Then for years, that sort of version of the Paddingtons, we were bang on. I was, and, and we was selling out the venues, and we was getting the press that we wanted, and we felt we deserved. Because we got a bit of harsh press before the album came out, but I think we convinced a few people that there was a good live, and B that we had a fucking good album produced yeah. well. It, I mean. There was a point, was it, was it Josh was going out with Agnes Dean? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that, that would be kind of put you in the papers as well. I, I well she started going out, they started going out with each other before she'd made it famous. Mm-hmm. She was a model. which We met her in, London, in Paris at uh, Christian Dior's launch or birthday. Doherty was there, actually, as well. It was in Paris. And uh, I remember that. I remember the night because I was knocking around with pet shop boys and all that lot. 
And uh, she turned up and she was just there working as a model. And uh, so we became mates with her, but then she got with Josh and then she went massive. Yeah. Massive. And, uh, and the Josh ended up moving to New York with her for a bit. Right. So there was together um, a couple of years. She's, I, I mean, she was ace, Aggie. I missed her to yeah. bits. I hadn't seen her for years. But she was she was a bit like us in a way. She was like a working class lass. Do you know what I mean? And there's some of that. We connected with her, really. Even though she, and then when it became, the circus that went around it with with her career, I think it got a bit much, really, in the end. But, uh, yeah, she was a good lass, Aggie. Real good lass. I mean, they're wearing a... She wore a pair of trainers, Ryan McPhail. He'd done the artwork for the, the first View album. Yeah, yeah. And he used to do... You could buy trainers off him, and he'd done yeah, yeah. design on them. I can mind her wearing a pair of them. It was on one of the Yeah, because that was... He used to do them himself. He, like, doodled, sort of, wasn't it? Like, doodled yeah. his, his own distinct side. But didn't they get... Didn't they actually manufacture some as well? Properly? Yeah, cause, yeah, because I had a pair at one point. Yeah, I remember them. He was a good lad. I, I think I still got them somewhere in the loft or something. Oh, every pair was different because he was just... Yeah. Uh, so, the next album came out, No Mundane Options. Wasn't it the same kind of reception? Do you think no, it didn't change me then? I think so. I mean, I, I'm quite proud of that album. Such, I mean, because it, it's we, we, we approached it very different. I mean, ultimately, there's still some of the vibe. Like the first song on the album probably could be on the first album, uh, but some of it wouldn't fit on the first album. There was a uh, and the, and the songwriting was more spread fairly between the fairly. That's the wrong way of putting it. At the first album, I pretty much wrote all the songs, pretty right. much. And, and Tom did some. There was a couple of songs me and Tom wrote together, and there was one Grant and did write a song on it, and Josh did, but mostly it was me. Second album, I wrote five songs. And the other five were spread between the band, so there's there's that plays into it, different di- different approaches to writing songs. I mean, there, there was them 10, 11 songs were picked from about fifty songs. We wrote loads and loads of songs, mm-hmm. and I think the production was done for a start. We did the first album in two weeks. This album was done in two months. Right, and we, we did it in Glasgow. We did a month, then a couple a week off, and then we went back and finished it. And the producer was very different. Tony Dugan, who was really, really good, and he pushed us to places we didn't think we could go, to be fair, musically. We're better musicians. I think, I think in term in terms of reception, I think like the at the enemy give us a six out of yeah. ten, which are four, fair enough. It's not it's not five, it's not four. But they did make a point, and I think it was like which it took too long to release that album. There was loads of things going on in the background. We changed with managers. There was a big change in uh, what was going on at the record label, which led to us getting dropped. So we set our own label up. So it just took longer than it should. And I think what the enemy did, the enemy hit the nail on the head, really. They said it was an all right album, but it said there's a band called The View who've done it a year before. And it said, is, is, it, is it as relevant as it used to be? And I think The View did, they did, they did came out and pipped us to it. Do you know what I mean? And I think, and, and, and fair credit, fair credit where it's due. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think it was a bit. If there was the things in the background, did trip us up. But we, I mean, to be fair though, we did that. We released that album. We toured it. The gigs were still rammed. We still got, went around the bloody world. It was all right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think after after that album, it started to wane, and we Marv left, and there was a couple of things going on, and and then we had another go right at the end, which I really enjoyed that period as well, but. 
I think, and I think there was a bit going on in that second album period. I was in drinking too much. Uh, there was a few things. Like we, we went and recorded the album at the Charlatan Studio first. Right. Six songs. And uh, and then it never got released. We, we scrapped it and started again. Mm. You know what I mean? And, like, and then we ended up paying 16 fucking grand for the scrapped album we never used. And then we had to do it again. So there was loads of mismanaged, not mismanagement. Well, probably us. We probably just, my eye wasn't the ball. Josh's eye was on the ball, but he was trying to get our eyes on the ball and was always bloody bickering and yeah. his really. <laughs> I think I think at that time as well, you said like between 2005 and 2007 was probably the kind of the golden period. And if you maybe got a second album out at the end of that, but just yeah. waiting another year, kind of I think yeah. music was moving that fast at that point. Yeah. I think things like Claxons came. I mean, I love that Claxons first album. That came into those, yeah. And I think, I think maybe, yeah, that that new new rock and roll revolution scene that's which, which birthed lots of different scenes. It was kind of on its ass. Yeah. I mean, it was like and 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 which meant we was on our ass unless we adapted or moved quick enough, and we just couldn't. We was we were sort of stuck in limbo for man, management wise and stuff, and and I think. You're right. If that had come out 2007, if that had come out early 2007 or yeah. two, late 2006, different kettle of fish potentially. But yeah. if we'd have done it, it'd have been a different album because there was loads of songs that weren't even wrote then. Mm. So it makes you wonder, doesn't it? What ifs? Yeah. Anyway. It's just, I mean, because NME are kind of that fickle as well. They're kind of, if you're away for a lengthy time, they, they're just, they're putting somebody else in there. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, because yeah. they're, they're selling their, their magazine regardless. Yeah, but you've exactly. you still, you, you always hear your, the fan base that you're built up. So that's how you kind of, you wouldn't notice it at gigs and things like that. Because, yeah, we, yeah. the fan base was solid. And, and, that, and that was not just in places like Scotland, which I mean, you probably heard this before, but musicians generally say that your Scottish fan base is the most fucking loyal fan base you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And that, you'll, you'll have heard that, I'm sure, of people. And it was with us, it was the same. But our London fan base was equally as loyal. And in fact, the London fan base probably adapted more. You could saw different faces a little bit. Uh, people went, came and went, but like Leeds was good. Ironically, though, the whole fan base. We was never, sometimes Hull was a real good gig and Hull's a brilliant but odd place. Mm. But, uh, so sometimes the old, it wouldn't, some people in Hull didn't realise how good we was doing outside of Hull. It was, in, it was an interesting thing that, I think they did in the end, they sussed it out. But yeah, yeah. So you had another be released just 2010, the Ladyboys tapes, and that was yeah, working yeah. with Adam Green. Yeah, we did a song with Adam. We were friends with Adam for years through Pete and more Carl, actually, Carl Barat. Yeah, he but, was uh, like, yeah. Pete, yeah, and, yeah. And Josh used to have a partner, his girlfriend at the time, sorry, was his manager. So there was a bit of a link there as well. So uh, Adam's great. We only did one song with him and we recorded it in the Dirty Pretty Things. It was uh, Anthony Rosamondo and uh, Dids recorded Hi. it. Anthony Rosamondo recorded all of it, actually. Right. Did he? Did he? Yeah, he did. Or did he mix it in the end? There's a few people involved in it. We ended up doing it at a studio, which was this guy who did The Cure, produced it. It was really good. But the different, the big difference was that Marv was not in the band anymore. So right. we had Stewie Bevan. Stewie Bevan was a, 
he was a he was a peer who was in a band called Kill, Kill City. Sorry, yeah, I get yeah, yeah. There's a there was a, there's a band another race band from all called Kill Surf City named right. after the. That's the song by what they're called Scottish. Uh, What's his name? Oh, Bobby Gillespie's band when he was a drummer. Oh, I, Matt, Jesus, uh, Mary Jesus Mary Jane. Yeah, I think that, that they named after that. And Kill City was named after the Iggy Pop song Kill City. Right. And he was in that band, Stewie. He actually played for us when Marv hurt his hand. Marv really damaged his hand in a bit of a nightclub pissed up accident. So Stewie played with us for a tour in 2005. Uh, and when Marv left, we kind of split up for a bit, but we reconvened and without going to it too much, we, we, Marv went with us, uh, and which is all good now because we've sorted it out with Marv. But uh, Stewie came in, so it had a different guitar player on it. Different, you could see there was a, you could see where we was going as a band. Mm-hmm. We're listening to a lot more American sort of music, pavement and the likes of that sort of stuff, and you can see it going that way. Pretty pity, does sound like an, uh, and like an early nineties sort of indie banger, an American indie banger, as in like more leaning towards guided by voices or whatever. And it was good, good times. And we and we, and, and we, that was it. We toured that a couple of we toured it twice or something, and we split up. <laughs> and then we all got jobs. <laughs> right. So, yeah, because, I mean, that was... You went on a hiatus. Was it a hiatus or did you kind of... We didn't formally split up. Yeah. It just, just stopped. One day leads into a week to a month, did it? And then kind of... Yeah. There's just no there. But you come yeah, back... I was 20, like, 2014, you come back for a festival. Yeah. And... yeah, there's a festival in London. I'm going to big it up now. There's a guy, and Mark, a guy called Mark Page. Mac. And uh, he... Do you know, like I said back in, earlier on in the interview about the Adelphi's where you needed to play in Hull, mm-hmm. the other side of the coin or the other side of the same, whatever, is Mark Page and the Sesh, a weekly night in Hull called the Sesh. And that's where all bands play. And they're still to this day do. It's a really good night. It's been going on for years. Any band who's of anything has to play the Adelphi and has to go through the Sesh. Right. Not has to, but they do. And uh, So Mark had done a festival the year before called the Humber Street Sesh. And then two years later, it grown into a bit of a monster, really. It's like a regional platform for regional bands, original regional bands. And there's fucking loads, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's a massive... We've just done it two weeks ago. Big right. festival in the city centre. It's all regional bands. Anyway, he does it and says, I'd love the pads to play. And we thought, we fucking... We hadn't really seen Tom at all. He was, at the time, with his partner, and he was doing all the stuff. You could used to see him in bloody in magazines because he knocked around with Harry Styles and all that. Like, you didn't see him for fucking about three years. Josh won't live in here. Uh, but we got together and it was tense because Marv played and we hadn't really went out with Marv since we'd, he'd left the band. Mm-hmm. But we played this gig and it was a bit much, but we did pull it off and it was great to play again. But it was all a bit rushed and it was all a bit... I guess we hadn't cleared the air properly. We should have done, but we did yeah. it. And there's some good footage out there. You can find it, and it's bang on. And uh, I remember playing, and I remember playing that gig, and I'm looking on the floor on stage. Everyone's going mental in this venue, you know. And I can just see Tom Laid on the floor singing his head laid there, covered in fucking Jägermeister. And I'm like, yeah, we're back, boys. This is fucking brilliant. But yeah, that was it. And we didn't, re- we did, we, we didn't record anything at that point. But we we did. That was like we we, we all agreed. All right, we're a band. It might be. Every five years, it might be every two years, right? It might be the next 20 years, but we're still a band. 
and we still are because we did some more just a few years after that as well which was a bit more like so we Libertines were playing a tour on the back of I guess that album so it was not 2017 the, mm -hmm. I don't know what it was called the album anyway we, we, they played the, they was playing Ice Arena in whole big venue 3000 capacity and they just rang us and said do you want to play right we was like fucking yeah go on so we got our act together Josh came home for it and we did all the we were talking to Josh actually about three weeks before it maybe a month because we knew the gig was booked and he went should we go on tour and we were like can we and we fucking did so Josh booked we played Adelphi as a warm up and that was ace then we played the next night uh, uh, Ice Arena supporting the Libertines which was massive and I, I was nervous for that gig man that was a big gig not because we were supporting the Libertines but it was a big gig and I, they were the feelings that you used to get when you played Brixton Academy supporting somebody a big big old crowd yeah and then we went and did three more gigs we did uh, went up to Glasgow and played a gig in Glasgow which was ace Mm -hmm. And uh, then we played uh, a Leeds show, which again sold out and was ace. And then we did a 900 capacity gig in London, which was sold out. And we went on tour. Right. And it was in, and, and, the, and Stewie played as well as Marv. So we had three guitarists. So it was kind of nearly as many guitars that are actually recorded on the first album. <laughs> and that was nice. I, mean, I think the air, was, the air was clear. There was enough time between what happened with Marvin in 2008 and nine when he left the band and then and was all a bit more grown up and it was just, yeah. we had a time all this. I mean, to be fair though, we I needed a week off work after the talk because it took it out of me. <laughs> I'm not getting any younger. So what's your plans then for the Paddington's now? Any plans at the moment or is he just kind of... Yeah, it's interesting. I I mean, there's some, there's some booked in this year. And I'm yeah. gonna say but when yet because it's a bit of a QT thing and it's it's a, a whole thing basically, but there's gonna be some news soon. Right, we are, that's right. So we are we we've rehearsed about three weeks ago actually. Oh that's brilliant. That's brilliant yeah. news, man. So we just I think I, I don't know if there's gonna be a there won't be a tour or anything. Uh, there might be something down the line. But the thing is, what's happening is Tom Atkins gagging to play again because he's just released some solo music and mm -hmm. and uh, and then, so he's always down wanting to rehearse and we, we were, we're, we're going to gig. You're going to see, you're going to see the Paddington's play. And I, I, I you know, Josh didn't listen to this because I, he didn't know about the gig yet. Cause he hadn't spoke <laughs> to him. He's really hard to get in touch with him because he lives in Brooklyn. Uh, so, and if he's in the country, of course he'll play guitar with us. And if he's not, we might have to think work to out. But yeah, there's going to be something, but there's potentially going to be some other stuff we're going to do with Tom as well. So me me and the, the whole bass Paddington, so me, Marv, and our kid are probably going to back Tom for some of his solo stuff as well. So right. watch his space on that. And I think I think we'd want to record, me and Tom have been threatening to record even just some demos this year, but we haven't got around to it because ah, I've all got kids and jobs and stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you will see, even after this year, you'll see some, it will be about, I'd like to think we'd play a little tour again, just one. Oh, so maybe five dates. If we can make that work, we can make that work. You'll set, you'll certainly see one-off gigs, certainly. Yeah. 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 So, what what else are you doing? Like, obviously, you're at your work at the moment. Yeah. You do a bit of youth work, don't you as well? Yeah, I'm a. I work for a charity in all called Goodwin Development Trust. So, 
it's like a old-fashioned community development organization it employs quite a lot of people actually but we, we support people in quite marginalized young people vulnerable families we, we housing association I'm, i manage a project called the training skills opportunities team so what we do is we support young people through either getting them into work but also getting them into activities that are going to broaden the world the right world view and get them plugged in we do a lot of stuff around music and events management and stuff so get young mm -hmm. people working with musicians locally and put on put on gigs and stuff like that it's great youth work is where i started so like old school youth working youth centers teaching kids to play guitar but i've been here 10 years now 11 years i think right. literally when the patterns stopped i went to uni and studied it youth and community studies and i've been working here since it's great I mean, Hull's got its issues. You know what I mean? Some council, some of the council states in Hull have got some, got some problems, man. And organisations and people I work like Goodwin and other organisations, it's a real good place called the Warren in Hull as well, who do some really good stuff around music and they have a record label, but it's essentially a youth work programme. Right. Places like that are needed in Hull. And, uh, and then the, some of the staff I work with are, are excellent, you know, excellent. And the young people, it's driven by young people as well. So it's not us prescribing what they need to do yeah like they're experts of their situation how can we help you understand your situation and overcome it it's right. i really enjoy it and it's got a political element as well for me personally social justice basically it's about mm -hmm. righting some wrongs and helping people overcome the situation themselves build capacity to do that that sounds good man it sounds amazing yeah. so so yeah. from that like um you see about helping people through music and things like that is there any kind of up-and-coming talent came for that, anything like that, no? This, I mean, not through the stuff we do, because we're, we're more like entry-level with music. I mean, some really good events management people, but in mm. Hull. So here's, here's your tips for the Hull bands, mate. So have you, have you heard of Life? Life? The band Life. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've seen them on Spotify, I'm sure. Check Life out. So Life are like, they're like touring mates with idols. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Life a Brilliant, great punk band. Fucking brilliant band, anyway. And uh, check them out. There's a band called Low Hummer, who I love to bits. Low Hummer. And they're yeah. just, they've just landed a bloody tour, tour support with Manic Street Preachers. They're doing it all month. It's interesting. That? That's just coming up. I think my pals yeah. want to see them. My well, pals the Low Hummer. Somewhere south, I think Yeah, well, Low Hummer are supporting them. Check, get him to check them out. Right. And Dan, Dan, who's uh, the singer, one of the singers, he's just got a job at Goodwin, but I don't think he can start until he's after <laughs> his tour. <laughs> so I'm going to let him off. Uh, so they're great. Who else? Cannibal Hannibal. Fucking right. noisy, horrible bastards, but they're brilliant. <laughs> they're brilliant. <laughs> and they're like, really, oh, mate, I mean, they're hard to describe. We put them on supporting us. On that tour in 2017, 18, whenever we did it, and like, Tom was like, "Oh, are they? I don't, I don't, I don't know who they are." He said, "Just trust me; these are gonna blow your fucking head off." And was sat in Brudenell Social Club watching them, and he he looked at me and went, "You were fucking right about these." I went, "Told you, mate." Moo yeah. and all them lot, and they're a great set of lads. They're, they're my tips. And then right. my other band, Hillbilly Troop. Hillbilly Troop's my other band. Check right. I've out. seen some of these videos on your Facebook and things like that. Yeah, yeah. that's like a. It's we're trying to. It's a. Inter, it's an intergenerational drinking club. So right. the singer's seventy odd, and I'm. I'm probably the youngest in the band actually. But we've got whistle player, accordion, kind of playing the Irish stuff, kind of play some of our own stuff, high energy folk music, mm -hmm. and I play bass as well in the, the Asmin Co band. 
So Yasmin Coat, and that's a great, because it's, Yasmin's like 1920, great musician, songwriter. And then there's me playing bass and Matt Edible, who plays in the, he's plays some real good stuff. He's been in bands over the years. Matt Edible plays in, uh, he's got his own band, The Holy Orders, and he's in he's in Fonda 500, who are an amazing whole band who've been around for years. Mm-hmm. And then, and his, old, his solo stuff. And then John Andrews from Kingmaker. So there's all these, there's this three old men and this little lady who's a little, who's here. So three men and a lady. <laughs> yeah, they all sound good. I'm going to check all of them, eh? Yeah, nice one. So just the, the end back of the podcast, because it's called Time for Heroes. I ask you to pick four heroes. Yeah. Um, I did this yesterday. Right? Yeah. Um, so fire away with your four heroes. Right, because this was hard. I was, I was in, I was in the booze yesterday. I went for a pint to meet my mate Tom Stratton, who's one of my best mate. And I told him about the concept. This, and he went, "Hang on, why are I there?" <laughs> I went, "To be honest, mate, I'd have to get rid of one of these people. So these are the people that he, I, I might change my mind and put him in there." Well, just so, fire him in as well as I know that we mentioned them. Which, I mean, as I say, I say four heroes. Um, yeah, Gemma for Baby Shamble's picked about fifteen. Did yeah, you? <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. well, there you go, Tom Stratton. If you're listening, which I'm sure you will be, you are at the table and not at the expense of these four. So, Woody Guthrie, right? Tony Ben, uh huh, Joe Strummer. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was the fourth one? Oh, wait a minute, Tony Ben, Joe Strummer, Woody Guthrie, Neil Young. Brilliant. That's my that's my table. And to be honest, it's boy heavy, and I feel it in hindsight. I feel a bit, I should have maybe <laughs> thought about that a bit better. But uh, for inclusivity in that, because there's some legends out there, Yasmin Kirk can join us and Tom Stratton can join us. But they're the ones, I mean, Neil Young's my idol. I love Neil Young. Joe Strummer, fucking it's Joe Strummer. Yeah. Woody Guthrie, this this machine kills fascists. And, and, and people who know me know that I'm kind of left-wing, hence Tony Benn. Being Tony Benn's a brilliant choice. I met Tony Benn at Glastonbury once. Right. Yeah, we supported Tony Blen on the left field. The Paddington's was on, uh-huh. and then oh no, Tony Blen was supported us. He was on before us, and we played after him on the left field. And what are you? What, what's happening? What are you cooking? Am I a good cook? I, I I can't cook. I couldn't uh-huh. cook, and then this is so <laughs> unrock un- and roll of me. But in lockdown, me and my partner Kerry got into Hello Fresh. You know that Hello Fresh thing where you get the box yeah. of food and all that. And it's like, I like it because it's kind of like, it's like, I describe it, it's like Lego or Meccano, but with food. So right. I've learned a few things. So I guess I'd cook them a, a curry or something. See what the thought of that. Like, yeah. yeah. But if you asked me two years ago, it'd have been beans on toast. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing up with beans on toast. Yeah. I can't beat that. Put a bit of chilli flake in the beans and that. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, you're <laughs> 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 uh, no, they're all brilliant choices. Different for a lot of people I've had on before. That's what I kind of. That's what I want is to build up a kind of list of different choices. But um, it's brilliant, man. Thank, thank you very much for coming on. A- I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on 
the Facebook page Time for Heroes Podcast or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1 or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.